Good morning. My name is Nathan Miller. I'm the family ministry pastor here at Friendship, and it is a pleasure to bring this edition of Epic Poetry, Psalm 46, we get to talk about today. And so if you have a, a Bible, I'd invite you to take it out. There's some free Bibles on a little thing in the back that you're welcome to grab if you didn't bring one. Or be really cool and take out your app and follow along on your phone. But you're going to want to because Psalm 46 is a rich psalm and there's some great things. We can look at it in black and white by just going through some of the slides, but look at it in color this morning by seeing it for yourself in the verses, if you would. Epic poetry, Psalm 46. It's a poem, but it's also a song. If you look at the beginning before the verses, there's a couple words describing what we're about to look at, and it says, to the choir master of the sons of Korah, according to Alamoth, a song, a song. This is a song. This is something that they would have sung many years ago. I don't know about you, but uh, when I listen to the radio, there's sometimes you just get moved by, by the voice sharing a message, even though there's distance, right? So, if I'm listening to Taylor Swift, I'm not a single woman. And yet there's things that she, newsflash, there's things that she says that I'm like, oh, that's so true. That's exactly, you, you just, you took the words right out of my mouth. Why is that? Because music has a power, right? To convey universal truths. So we're, we're up against some things this morning because this was written Many, many years before the radio, this, this isn't something you've been listening to all week. And it was written in a context like Taylor that's different than us. Maybe some of you are very much like Taylor this morning, but for, for most of us, this is an odd, different voice. It's to Israelites, they fear different things, the concerns are different, and yet there's some universality, some shared truths that I think will be helpful for us as we look at this song together. In fact, if we were to sing it, um, typically this was sung at the temple, in a temple setting, and it's kind of the emphasis is on God dwelling in Jerusalem. So we'd be at the temple, and as the priest, um, I would wait, you all as Israelites would begin, and you would sing verse 1, 2, and 3. Then I as the priest, the Levite, would, would read or recite or sing verses 4, 5, and 6. And then you would come back with the chorus in verse 7. Then I would read 8, 9, and 10. And then you would all end with the chorus, verse 11. If you notice, verse 7 and 11 are the same, are the same uh, verse. And that's kind of the chorus. And verse 1 actually is also the chorus. It's just slightly reworded. Um, but we'll get into some of that. But we'd be singing, right? And as we'd be singing the song, it would get to the climax of the song. And every song has kind of a, oh, this is really what it's all about. And in our psalm this morning, that's verse 10. Because God is speaking. In the, in the New Testament when God speaks or when Jesus speaks, what color does the font change to? For some of our Bibles, red. This would be like the version of the red letters of this psalm would be verse number 10. And the message is this. The message is this. When we are still and know that he is God, everything changes in us and for the world. Look at verse 10 with me. It says this, Psalm 46, 10, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth, God says. So if this was the climax of the song, 
And the main point, we need to understand, what is he saying? What is God saying? Be still and know that I am God. And then if we can kind of wrap our heads around that, we can see why, why this matters throughout the rest of the psalm. So let's just break that down in those three phrases. Be still, know that I am God. So be still, okay? Let's start with that phrase, be still. And you see it in verse 10. What does it mean to be still? I don't know about you, but as a parent, sometimes I will ask my kids to do things. I know, it's terrible. It's mean, it's harsh. Uh, but they need to chip in as well. So I'll ask them to do a task, okay? And when I ask them to do the task, I have specific instructions, okay? Um, I'll give an example. Feed the bunnies. Take the, the, the lettuce and put it in the cage, okay? Now, if I come back a couple minutes, an hour later, and that hasn't been done, I get upset, right? Like all of you would. Just, I asked you to feed the bunnies. Put the, put the lettuce in the cage. Um, feed them. And water as well. But what is often the case when I, when I go back and see that it's not done is there's an explanation of, of why, why it wasn't, wasn't done, right? Well, you see, there's this YouTube video that came on. And it was really important that I kind of, or actually what ended up happening, see, I was, I was about to do that, but when I went to the kitchen, I noticed something... Excuse, excuse, excuse. Now, this, this is hypothetical. This has never actually happened. I actually feed the bunnies. And Maria feeds the bunnies. So this is not, I'm not being cruel to my kids. But as a, as a regular pattern, we ask things and we expect people to, to respond. Certainly our, our, our young uh, kids, right? Well, this is exactly what happened in 1 Samuel. And in 1 Samuel, Saul and Samuel are interacting. And Samuel had told Saul, hey, you need to take the Amalekites, these enemies, and, and wipe them out and get rid of all their stuff. That's your job, okay? Can you do that, Saul? And Saul's like, oh, yeah, no, totally, I'll do that. But then when he, when he is getting rid of the Amalekites, he notices, wow, that's a really nice sheep. Ooh, they've got some really nice, that's a nice hot tub. Let's keep that. Uh, we don't want to destroy the hot tub. I like their animals. And he, and he picks and chooses what he's actually going to do. Well, God gets really upset, and he tells Samuel, you need to go to Saul and tell him, uh, or see, see, you know, report, uh, report back. And so in 1 Samuel 15, verse 16, 1 Samuel 15, verse 16, then Samuel said to Saul, and this is after Saul had said, well, uh, let me just explain what happened here. You see, I've got this, I got that. I mean, I, I, I took out most of the stuff, but Samuel says, stop, stop. Enough, I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he says, okay, no more excuses, you're, you're in trouble. That, that is what be still means. Like it's the same Hebrew word, it's a, it's a perfect parallel. When in our passage, God is saying be still, he's saying shut up, which I'm not allowed to say in our house, okay, but, but on the stage I can say it, okay. He's saying that. Stop, enough, enough. Quit with your excuses. Quit with your war and your fighting that's happening in our psalm. It's the exact same word. Be still, enough, stop. Cease striving, cease, cease this, this, uh, this warring, fighting, and excuse making. 
Quit making excuses and, try, and striving to do things in your broken way. This, this is the core sin from the beginning, is it not? Adam and Eve in the garden, eat all the tree, from anything you want, don't eat from that tree. And what happens? God shows up again, okay, have you been doing what, what I've asked you to do? Well, yeah, about that. So there's this snake, let me, okay, rewind. So, no, we totally did. What, do, you, do you see what I'm saying? That We've done this from the beginning. God asks us to do things, and then we come and disobey, and then we make excuses. And those excuses turn into conflict and tension and fighting and warring, and that's kind of where we're at in this psalm. There's, there's nations fighting against each other, and over all of that chaos and tension and disobedience leading to fighting, God rises up and says, enough, stop, be still. But don't just stop fighting, which is normally what I do as a parent. Would you just, ah, I'm trying to drive. Like, I don't want to deal with it. Just, enough, stop. I say that all the time, right, as I'm driving. But he also adds to it, and know that I am God. This is where it gets interesting. So what does it mean to know? Be still and know. Well, to acknowledge, to understand, to recognize and humbly submit. Not just intellectually, but, but posture. Our posture is changing. We, we are going to pursue this one who has told us to stop fighting. Be still and know. God is looking for our humble acknowledgement of his divine rule, not just, not religious activity to make us look good. So he's like, be still and know. And then what's the last one? That I am God. What in the world does that mean? Know that I am God. So, so who? Like, what, a, what about me do you want me to know? Like, okay, I'm not fighting anymore and I'm listening, but what is it that you want me to know about you being God? And I think the answer to this is in the chorus of our song, which is verse 1, verse 7, and verse 11. And again, I think they're the same chorus. Um, it's harder to see, again, because it's been translated. We're, we're working against things, right? If you saw it in the Hebrew, you'd see the beautiful parallel, but, but we can see it even in the English. Look at verse 1, and then look at verse 7, okay? Back and forth. Look at verse 1. God is our refuge and strength, line 1, a very present help in trouble, line 2. Now look at verse 7. Which of these lines is most like the other? God is our refuge and strength is most like what line in verse 7? You see these two lines in verse 7? The Lord of hosts is with us. Is that more like line 1 or line 2 of verse 1? If God is with us, if the Lord of hosts is with us, it means he's a very present help in trouble, right? Right? And then in verse 7, if the God of Jacob is our fortress, that's another way to say that God is our refuge and our strength, right? Do you, see, do you see the similarity? This is just the poetic way of saying the same thing but slightly different. And this is the chorus that they would sing three times. There's three stanzas to the song and in each stanza you get a chorus, okay? And as they're singing this song and they would be in Jerusalem worshiping God and, and recognizing that God was there with them in Jerusalem and they would be saying this, the same thing about God at least three times every time they sang this song, Know that I am God. What? Well, the thing you just sang three times. So what is it that they just sang three times? At least three things that, there's lots of things God is. But in this song, they say three things. God is personal. 
God is personal. Whose refuge and strength is he? The guy down the street? No, he's our refuge and strength. Whose fortress is he? He's our fortress. Think about it. If, you're a, if you are an Israelite who just walked in the desert to get to, to this place of worship across the sand and you're kind of vulnerable in the sand, let's say there's fighting going on, you, you, to say, God's my fortress, my refuge, my strength, he's my protection. Like I'm just picturing as I'm by the temple here, yeah, kind of like, like these walls here that I could be protected standing next to God being my fortress and my refuge. But it's personal, right? So he's our refuge and strength, but it's also that God is present. God is present. This is, and I get this from, from verse one. Being our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. So when I said, saw the word present, I thought, hmm, God is present. Maybe let's use that word, right? God is present, very present. Um, I had a stove breakdown, a gas stove, um, the other day. And I went to the hardware store, big, big box hardware store, looking for the replacement piece because the gas pipe was a different size from the one that I, the adapter I needed to put in. And so I went in, and right away, I, first person looks up on their app and is like, hey, what are you looking for? Yeah, it's on, it's, this is the aisle. So I go to that aisle. Well, this is like a complete kit. I don't need the complete kit. Where's like the individual pieces? So then I'm, I make my way back. I eventually find the aisle that it's supposed to be in. But there's like a wall of pipe-fitting things, and I'm an idiot. And so I'm like, hey, could, could you help? And, and people are, I'm, I'm, in, I'm helping a customer. Could you help? No, I'm, I'm in the middle of something. Finally, I get someone to come over, look at the wall with me, and say, actually, this isn't my area. Let, let me call somebody. So this person calls, and on the speakerphone, he's asking, hey, you're the plumbing person. Can you, I've got a, a, a customer in this aisle that needs, I don't, I don't want to go over there. I'm, I'm in the middle of something. I'm not, I, hey, you're on speakerphone. Shut up. So then he takes off speaker, and then they finish their conversation. I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm feeling really really good about myself. And then finally I get two guys that were supposed to be the, the experts. They come and they're like, yeah, it's definitely one of those. So what do I do? I buy every possible fitting, fill my cart, go, and then return it later. Okay. That's, that's one scene that really did happen. That's frustrating. I'm not going to name the store. It's, I'm sure there's good people there. That's a very different experience then whenever I go to dun, 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 Ace Hardware, the place with the helpful hardware, folks, the, the, it, is, it is a different experience. I walk in, and, and I would do this a lot at, um, when I was living in the cities. We were right near one, so I'd walk in all the time. And Dave, he owned the, ho- he owned the hardware, Wellna, Ace Hardware, Dave Wellna. Hey, Dave. Nathan, what's up? Come on in. What do you need? Oh, you need a pipe? Yeah, come, come here. This is what you're going to look for. It's either one of these three things. Oh, you have a picture? Great. Let me see the picture. Yeah, you're going to want this. Oh, you definitely want to use the plumber's tape that's the, this color, not the, it's a little thicker, da, da, da. He, he's, yep, you want this, this, and this. Anything else I can get for you? Want some popcorn on your way out? Great. Very, very different experience, right? Who in that scenario was a very present help? Ace hardware, ace hardware, okay? The way that God is being described here, to me, maybe it just resonates as a homeowner trying to, <laughs> struggling, why doesn't anybody help me? 
They're like running away from me as I, as I come to them. That's not our God. God is not trying to avoid you or like annoyed that you're asking him for stuff. He is a very present help. He's waiting at the door. You come in. He's waiting there for you. He knows exactly the needs that you have and is ready to help you in those. And as they're singing, God, you are a very present help in time of trouble. That matters because a lot of trouble is happening, as we'll see. And, and if you see in your Bible, for me at least, there's a, uh, a footnote that says, very present could also be translated well-proved, well-proved, or has a good track record. And I think this is fascinating because if you look at verse 7 and 11, the, the alternative versions of this chorus, you see that the God of Jacob is our fortress, which signifies what? The historical nature of God's goodness to, to, to his people. If he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I get, I get kind of emotional thinking the amount of examples in this Old Testament of stories of his faithfulness. Like, it's a thick book, you guys. That's a lot of faithfulness to God's people, right? A lot of faithfulness. And he's shorthand being described in this song as the God of Jacob, including all of the other patriarchs. He's been faithful throughout Israel's history. Very present. Well-proven a historically faithful, an amazing track record of protecting and delivering his people. He's personal, he's present, but he's also powerful. And it's one thing to, to be always near you, but if you're not going to help with much, it doesn't matter. Like, great, you're always here, but if you're impotent, I don't want you around. You're just kind of annoying, like a younger sibling, right? Just, I'm glad you're here, but you're just not helping things. But no, God, God is not just near, he's powerful, Powerful. And again, we see this in the chorus. He's described as, in verse 7, the Lord of what? Sorry, I'm bouncing around a lot, but verse 7, we're, in the, we're looking at that chorus. He's called the Lord of hosts. The Lord of hosts. Sabaoth, like that, that Hebrew, the Lord of hosts, is kind of an interesting name of God. The NIV translates it Lord Almighty, which is fitting. But it's this idea of he commands the hosts of the armies of the, of the earth, right? He is the mightiest warrior of all over all of the hosts. And, and not just military terms, but, but creation terms. Because we see in Genesis that he creates the hosts of the heavens. In Genesis um, 2.1. All hosts of creation were made by God. Or Psalm 33, by the word of the Lord, the host of heavens were made. Even Paul picks this up. Colossians 1, well known. For by him all things were created, and in him all things hold together. The, the, the power of God being described as Lord of hosts is one who doesn't just make all things, but sustains all things and rules all things at his command, everyone will in, stand to attention and carry out whatever order he gives. That's all being described as the Lord of hosts, or, or, or packed into this phrase, the Lord of hosts. Who is like you, Lord God Almighty? You, Lord, are mighty, and your faithfulness surrounds you. Psalm 89, verse 8, the mightiest of warriors, who stands ready to help in any way we need. 
But not just that he's the Lord of hosts, which tells me that he's powerful. He's also a strong refuge and fortress, which is another uh, thing packed into this chorus. He doesn't waver in trouble, but remains unmoved. He's strong. He's a tower. He's a fortress, something that we can seek shelter in and be safe. So this, this is a lot to try to say, who is this God that we're supposed to know that he is? Be still. Know that he is God, that he is personal and present and powerful. But how does that actually then change anything? And when I say, another way you could ask the question is, how does God's personal presence and power change things in our life, both for us and for the world? And I, when I saw that, I'm like, man, I'm an English major. I got to tighten that up. God's personal presence and power, you know, I like alliteration, Let's call it nearness and strength. God is near and God is strong. That's an easier way to say it. If God is near and God is strong, what difference does that make? And it makes a huge difference. It literally changes everything. And that's, that's what this psalm is all about. They, it, it's, it changes at least three things in us and two things in the world. So first of all, in us, because God is near and strong, we don't have to fear the worst. We don't have to fear the worst. Look at verse two. I get this from verse two, Psalm 46, verse two, it says, therefore, we will not fear. And then it describes what you should be afraid of. Creation being uncreated. When God separated the waters, made dry land and, 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 and sea in, the, in Genesis, here it's being described in reverse. Now the waters, the sea, or the, the, the dry land's going into the sea. It's a scary scenario. And really, this, the song highlights the two greatest fears that Israel had at that time. First stanza is talking about the seas or the natural calamities. And the second two stanzas are about nations or the relational turmoil or the, the fear of being taken over by warring people. Those are really the two greatest fears that Israel had. They might not be your fear this morning. They might not be my fear this morning. But in this song, we can re relate to the intense scariness that happens when we just think about, oh, man, what's the worst case scenario? Man, if, if there's an earthquake and a, and a, and a, and a hurricane, or a, and, and really it comes from this ancient Near Eastern worldview that understood the, the, that the earth rested on the foundations of the mountains that went deep into a cosmic ocean. And so when anything was unstable, it was a sign, the natural threats like earthquakes, volcanoes, floods, were a sign of, of, this, uh, of the disruption of that. And so uh, this ancient Near Eastern worldview, they were freaked out about that stuff. Life, like the, the earth literally sinking like the Titanic into the sea. That's, it's scary. It's a scary... Scary vision. But they didn't need to fear that because Psalm 24, verse 1 and 2 says, Because the earth is the Lord's and he has founded it on the sea, we can trust. So they're, they're first talking about the seas and the, the creation being uncreated, but we don't have to fear that. But also, the last two stanzas are about nations. And they were genuine, genuinely terrified as a vulnerable nation of being overtaken at any moment by, by a, a stronger and mightier force. But they could take refuge in God because, again, 
Historically, he's never let them down, right? So they're looking to the fact that he's got, he, he keeps sustaining us. And so, and we'll see in a moment, the very weapons of war used against us, he can snap in an instant. He can, he can silence the foes with his great power. He's near us and powerful, so we don't have to fear the worst. Again, we're not Israel, so this morning you might not be really worried that your house is going to be in Prior Lake when you get home. That might not be the thing that's most concerning you, but something is. What, what is your greatest fear this morning? What is your greatest fear as you approach this week? Will you let God's nearness and strength inspire fearless trust as you face that fear, whatever it might be. We don't need to fear the worst. We also get to experience the gladness of life in his presence. If you look at Psalm 46, verse 4, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. This is talking about Jerusalem in in, in context, the city of God or the habitation of the Most High, where God dwelled in Jerusalem. But it's it's more than that. Why? There was no river in Jerusalem. There is no river in Jerusalem. This is poetic. This is deeper than just, yay, yay, Jerusalem. We're going to put on our Jerusalem jerseys and, and yell, Jerusalem's the best and we're safe because Jerusalem's a great city. That's not what's being said here. It's the fact that God is there. It's not about a place. It's about a person, right? God's nearness is what's allowing us to have gladness. And again, this is that, the way that the cosmology, the way they viewed the world was that gods dwelt in the mountains, which were the foundation, and then rivers would flow from that, blessing the world. And so it's, it's using that image, and you see it in Psalm 33, 6, and, six to 8, Psalm, 30, or sorry, Psalm 36, verses 6 to 8, where the psalmist says, you give them drink from the river of your delights. That was the way they viewed. God would be giving blessings through the river of his delights, and it's being described. Because God dwells with us, we are glad. There's a, a river whose streams make glad the, cities of God, the city of God. I love in Revelation where we don't need any flashlights or bigger lights. Why? Because God dwells with us. He is our light in that city that we can look forward to. We experience gladness. We don't stub our toe in the darkness because God's there giving light to the city. And lastly, God's nearness and strength affecting us is that we feel his help through the nights that seem hopeless. I watched a movie um, a while back called 13 Hours, The Secret Soldiers of Benghazi. It's a Michael Bay film. I don't know if you've seen this one, but John Krasinski, the guy from The Office, is in it. It's kind of hard to like picture him as Jim Helpert being like a, a CIA operative, but if, if you can get there, he's, it's a really powerful movie in that it, it describes what's going on in this verse. There are these six elite ex-military operatives that are protecting a a compound, a diplomatic compound, back in 2012 that was being attacked by terrorists. And the scene that stands out is they're they're on the roof, the enemy is out there, and they're staying up all night long. They've They've already been fighting to try to keep them at bay, 
and it's super tiring, and it's about the break of dawn. They're on the roof, and they're waiting, and they're so tired, and they want to go to bed, but they can't, because when do enemies like to attack? At the break of dawn, right? And so we see in verse 5, God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. Even in that moment, when you're just about to get toasted, and it's like you've been up all night, it's been a sleepless night, and you're worried for that next thing that's going to come, even then, God is there, near and strong, to keep you safe. To keep you safe. When the enemy is most likely to attack, God is there protecting and delivering. And despite the dangers that we face, God is with us. God is with us. So we, we feel his help, even when the night seems seem hopeless. But it doesn't just matter to us as believers. It also matters to the world. God's nearness and strength actually benefits the world as well. And in at least two ways. One way is that we see peace begin to reign. We see peace begin to reign. If you look in verse 9, he makes wars, what? Cease to the end of the earth. Breaks the bow, shatters the spear, burns the chariots, any of the, the tools of war. Come with me to an evening at the Miller household and the chaos and the fighting the war that is raging, sibling against sibling, items of food being thrown around the kitchen, Nerf bullets whizzing through the air, a deep prayer that my wife and I have is, Lord, would you come in the coming minutes and by your power, your supernatural power, take these tantruming toddlers and Close their eyelids. Shut them down. Let the fumes that they're running on evaporate so that they collapse into their beds and usher in a season of peace. (laughs) Right? God in his power can do that, and he does. Every 24-hour cycle. It's amazing. I don't do it. God does it. He enters in to a situation I cannot fix Would you just go to bed? Quit fighting with each other. And he takes all of that chaos and silences it with his power. That's the picture that we're singing about. But it's on a cataclysmic national level. And in the same way, God, in a moment, like he did in Mark 4, when he got up from the boat and the waves are going all over the place, he's like, hey, peace, be still. Placid. He has that ability to do that in a moment. The world benefits greatly from that strength that he has. And it's something that we not only can just relish in, but also can participate in spreading. We have as agents of God's shalom, as God's peace, we are with the spirit dwelling within us and and God empowering us with his nearness and strength, we can bring that same aspect of peace and shalom to the places that we find ourselves throughout the week. And I ask, 
Is God inviting you to usher in this peace somewhere this week? It might be at work. It might be at your home. It it might be in some scenario where you know, man, it's just the chaos of the world is always in that space. How might God be using you to bring his peace? How could you prayerfully invite that peace into someone's world this week? This is a foretaste. Again, well before Jesus was on the scene that we're singing about in Psalm 46. But the foretaste is already there. There is a peace through Jesus Christ in the gospel. Acts 10.36. Paul says it describes the gospel of peace. Ephesians 6.15. Think about Isaiah 9. He's called everlasting father, prince of peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. There's a beautiful breaking of the Nerf guns that God does when he shows up that we actually get to, in our small way, join him in. And the world benefits. We aren't the only ones who benefit from God's nearness and strength. The world begins to taste the kind of peace possible through people who aren't so caught up in the tumult and the, and the chaos around us. As the world is unstable, our God is stable. And we're connected to his stability and can start to infuse that stability, again, not because of us, but because of the one in us giving us peace when we shouldn't have it and giving us strength when we shouldn't have it that the world sees, takes notice of, and begins to change because of. And and this actually brings us to our final point. We then praise God when that happens, and when we do, the world starts to join us. This is a missionary psalm. Look at verse 10. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. God's mighty acts on behalf of his people will bring him universal recognition. God will be exalted everywhere as people hear of all he's done. So how do they hear? We talk about it and we sing about it. What do you talk about during your week? Do the people around you, in listening to what you talk about, get a sense of God's nearness and strength? Is the, the, the focus of your regular habitual conversation, is that raising the, the meter of interest in God or the, the, the meter of, of uh, uh, exaltation of God? Is that meter being raised by your speech? Are you impacting people by just talking about the nearness and strength of your, of your God? We also sing about it. How often is there a melody of God's goodness on your lips? If people repeated your life's song, would it exalt God? God's nearness and strength changes everything in us and for the world. I'm going to put our summary slide up here and just read through them as a reminder. When we are still and we know that he is God, that he's powerful, and present with us. He's near and strong. It changes everything. It changes everything for us as believers. It changes everything for the world. We we no longer fear the worst. 
We experience the gladness of life in his presence. We feel his help through the nights that seem most hopeless. We see peace begin to reign and we start to praise God. And when the world sees, they join us. Let's spend some time singing about God's goodness, even this morning, reminding ourselves of his nearness and strength. And as we do that, we're going to have a time of communion. And in, uh, or at Friendship, we, we have open communion. You're welcome to join in. If you trust in Jesus, we want you to also take part. In the corners of the, of the sanctuary here will be tables with the elements. Um, while the song is playing, at your, uh, when you feel ready, Go and take the elements and then bring them back to the seat. We will take them together after this song.